if you were here when I taught a few weeks ago, um, you know, or a month, I don't know, you know the way that I started talking about this passage that was really complicated and that I didn't really want to engage with. Um, there was like a time that I was, it was in a like kind of a workshop thing and I was not interested, okay? So then I was like, sure, I'll teach on the sixth or fifth or whatever, and I'm looking at the lectionary, which we follow usually for Advent and the Lenten season, and of course it's like, first one, John 3. And so um, I, I mean, there's always others, and I kept trying, I was like, maybe the psalm, maybe we can do something different here, but I just kept coming back um, to the story of Nicodemus. And I think it's a good lesson just to start with, because there are some like really big like whoppers of verses in this um, in this story that can feel complicated, maybe because the way you grew up, language, um, anything. And so, I guess just to say for me that God has used this passage to um, mean something new, and so that's my hope for you today, also. Um, so let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read in John chapter three. Um, God. We're thankful, I'm thankful that even when we can't name where you have been in our week or don't want to say it out loud or whatever, that you are there, that you are here now, um, that you're in our lives and um, not just in the like easy, fun parts of it, but all, all the pieces, God, and help us to know that today. Amen. All right. I feel like I'm struggling with my microphone a little. It's like tugging on me a little. Okay, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can anyone enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have have eternal life. See what I did there? Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is so quiet in (laughs) here. It's not been this quiet in a really long time, like really aware of a very attentive group today. Um, okay, so this is our story of Nicodemus. From here it goes, for whatever reason, the lectionary stops us at verse 17, but it goes and talks a lot about light. 
And in Scripture, we see that a ton, right? Um, In John 1, the light shines in the darkness. The true light came into the world. In John 3, all who do, do evil hate the light. In Isaiah, the people walk in darkness seen a great light, and on and on, right? We turn from darkness uh, to the light. God is light, for you are children of light, right? May uh, let your light shine before others, and of course Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But our story today takes place in the dark. And so I was trying to, I guess, getting curious to think about why, um, why does it take place in the dark? Does it even matter? Maybe. Um, a lot of people think that it's probably because our main character, Nicodemus, was a Pharisee. He wanted to come when people wouldn't see him, like the safety of darkness came um, in the night. Um, he was a religious leader, right? So like he, he couldn't just be sort of open in the crowds in the same way, um, engaging with Jesus. Um, but we don't know that for sure. Like I was thinking like, I don't know, maybe Jesus was busy or like Nicodemus had a lot on his plate, you know, and like had to wait till the kids were in bed to ask his questions, to have time to wonder. Um, I also thought maybe there's no reason, right? And our writer was like, that sounds good. It's like <laughs> nice to, to like mention it was at night and um, kind of brought that on. And so, so I'm thinking a lot about why it's in the dark and just about darkness. Um, I'll say a lot of my inspiration for today's sermon comes from a book by Barbara Brown Taylor called Learning to Walk in the Dark, where she really works to flip darkness as being only this one thing, like only bad. Um, And she says this really beautiful thing about when Jesus had been laid in the tomb, and this is what she says about darkness. If it happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air. New life starts in the dark whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. Another another author says this, uh, Cole Arthur Riley says, darkness, which is far too often reduced to a trite symbol for sin and death, in fact, has the unique capacity to bear the divine. Of course, she's talking about Jesus in a mother's womb, right? She says that we have the chance to reclaim the holy dark. Um, there was a scripture in 1 Kings, I don't even really know the context now, but it stuck with me from a reading last fall, and it says that Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in deep darkness. And so I'm thinking a lot about this metaphor of light and dark, um, and thinking about how for biblical people in biblical times, right, that's huge, right, and they don't have electricity, so it's like a really um, intense metaphor for them. But I was thinking about it now, and all the people maybe that it doesn't work for to say that it's always bad, like darkness always equals bad, um, and, and just letting it be what it is, which is a metaphor, not reality, like dark is not bad, light is not always good or only good. And so this is kind of what I thought through. So I read um, Adele, Adele Halliday is the anti-racism and equity officer with the United Church of Canada. A major focus of her team is actually discouraging the use of dark or black as synonyms for evil and white or light as equivalent to goodness. She says this, There's a particularly detrimental effect on people who are black when you can constantly hear black is bad, dark is bad. The false equivalency impacts people's self-image as well as how they treat one another. We could do a whole talk this morning on that. Thinking about someone who's blind, doesn't have access to the contrast of dark and light. Um, A person who lives somewhere really extreme, like the North Pole, 
and it's like light for hours on end. I don't know. I think, I think that's right. Like someone who lives where it's like 18 or 20 hours of light, and you're like, please, begging for darkness, right? Um, I was thinking about a person whose work, like a, like a farmer who works way more when it's light, right? The darkness of the winter can be a reprieve from the hard work. I was thinking of parents of young children in the summer, and they're like, just go to bed. I know it's light outside, but it's still 7.30 or whatever, right? Um, I was thinking of animals who do not read the Bible, but they often birth in the safety of the night. I labored during all of my labors. Um, at night, there's like a safety in the darkness when things are calm and there is time. Um, I thought of my friend Jo, who loves to walk at night. She loves the cover of darkness, um, the stillness, the moon. Uh, I thought of, like you, right, the night owl, whoever our night owl's here. Um, the parent who can be their self at night, you know, cheers to y'all who get a second wind sometime and regret it, but are just so glad to have that time alone. Um, and then all of us, right, even with sleep problems and waking up in the night, that's still the time that our bodies are renewed and that we are refreshed um, is in the dark. And so we can begin to shift, right, that like darkness doesn't have to mean one thing. And so I got curious more, okay, where else in the Bible do we see this happening? Like where else are we um, seeing God say that there is goodness in the dark? And Psalm 139 says this. Uh, it's not totally flipping it on its head, but it says this. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And it just made me think, like, God doesn't need the metaphor of light versus dark. Like, that's not, there's no need, you know? And in, in the creation story, God creates light, but he doesn't, like, take away darkness. We still have the darkness. Um, in Exodus, God tells Moses to stretch out his hand toward heaven, right? And there's three days of darkness. And then later, it says that Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's really beautiful. A couple places in Isaiah, um, God says, I form light. I make well-being, right? I'm the Lord who does these things. Um, God also says, I will give you the treasures of darkness. And so I want to return to that earlier quote, right, where we're thinking of things being born in the darkness, the, like, beauty that comes in darkness. And um, I'm going to read the story again. I think I did this last time. Where I kept reading it over and over. I'm going to read it again, and I want y'all to think about this as not as it's, like, coming and hiding, and the darkness is, is bad, and he's like, I mean, maybe Nicodemus is hiding, but also think about this new life that's being born in the darkness with Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being water, born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I love Nicodemus's questions, his curiosity, um, his hunger. Like we said this morning, blessed are those who hunger, they will be filled. It's beautiful. Um, I think he sounds like us, right? What does it really mean to be born again? What is it, you know, what is belief? What, um, am I doing this right? You know, like that drive to take things super literally to say um, that following Jesus looks this one certain way. Um, maybe as I say that, your mind goes to like other churches that are doing that, but in this room we do it, right? We're doing it all the time. That we think there's only one right way to respond to Jesus. And um, there's this, this obsession now, I think, in Christianity with that idea of like who is in and who is out. Um, and so as I was kind of researching and reading this week, I read so many sermons and essays that would say like, uh, we don't know for sure if Nicodemus was born again, right? So they're like, we're, we're worried about that. And like, um, there's no moment where he like sells his possessions and follows Jesus or becomes a disciple. Um, there's no specific words where like, we're assured that he believes the right way. Um, but Nicodemus shows up two more times in the book of John, which is really neat. So it gives us a glimpse of like next things for him. Um, in John chapter seven, he shows up um, he goes against his colleagues, and he fights for Jesus to have a fair trial. Okay, so he's not coming to Jesus at night anymore. He's like aligning with a person who you should not probably be aligning with at this point as a Pharisee. Um, later, and he shows up at Jesus' burial in John um, 19. And actually, I'm going to read you just a little of this, um, maybe. Um, so this is after Jesus has died and is being buried. After these things, Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. I read that normal was like two pounds of spices. I read that there's record Herod had something like 70 pounds. So that's a lot of spices, whatever that means, right? Like that's a lot what's happening there. It's a very lavish act. Again, that's like out in the open. This is, this is clearly a change from, from a man who came sort of in secret. Um, and so for me, what I see in this passage is, is this like beginning of a birth of, of transformation. And so I want to stick there a little longer. I feel like I'm going a lot longer than normal. But um, I want to talk about transformation a little um, in light of like a very current thing that I think is hap happens with people here and outside in Christianity. There's this buzzword, right? Deconstruction. Like everyone's deconstructing all the time. And the way that it's... <sighs> The way that it's explained, I guess, it's sort of like this faith maybe you grew up with, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, some of these things don't seem to fit in with who I am now, or, or what I believe now, or what 
seems right to me now. And so you sort of take these pieces apart and re-examine each of them. And sometimes for people that ends with them, I'm sure we all have people who, they leave church, right? They're like, that's it. I'm actually just going to stop at that point. Um, I think for some of us, we keep trying to like figure out how to reconstruct those pieces. Um, there's this guy who wrote a book in the 80s, which means people were deconstructing before like 2005. It's been going on a while. Um, but he wrote a book, and it came out in 1981. His name is James Fowler, and he writes about the stages of faith. Now, I don't think that there's only this really linear path of faith, but I think it will add to our discussion, if you'll bear with me. So very quickly, this is how it goes. Early, as small children, we experience faith through stories, through experience, through love in our families. Um, kind of around seven, in that kind of middle age time, kids bring in that strong need for justice. Um, stories are taken very literally. And so then in early adolescence, um, Fowler calls it the synthetic conventional faith. Let me read this to you. He said, it's characterized by conformity to authority and the religious development of a personal identity. Any conflicts with one belief are ignored at this stage due to the fear of threat from inconsistencies. And I think a lot of us, a lot of people stay here. This is, it feels safe because there are rules and there are things to follow. There is a way to do it. Um, Fowler says, for some people in their early 20s all the way through 30s, actually I think this could happen at any time, but you know, the sort of next step is called the individuative reflective. It's a stage of angst and struggle. The individual takes personal responsibility for their beliefs and feelings. They begin to reflect on their own beliefs, and there's an openness to a new complexity of faith but it also increases the awareness of conflicts in one belief, right? So I think we could call that what we're calling deconstruction. It's that thing where it's all getting torn apart. It's messy. Um, after that is there are two more stages. The next one is sort of that beginning of grasping of paradox, of mystery, of questioning. Um, it's like the Augustine quote, if you have understood, then what you have understood is not God, right? That's when we get to that point where we're like, okay, I don't know. Maybe I don't have the answers anymore. Um, and then the sixth stage is it's just a, a more settled is what is sort of compassionate outlook. Um, so guess what I'm getting at is that the way I see Nicodemus here is that he's seeing this faith um, that he had, and he's beginning to like tear it apart, to ask the questions and to wonder and to say, is there something different, something more that I, I want to be seeing? And so I think the way that I view deconstruction is a little different. It's like at the beginning, we think we have all the answers. Right in the middle, we realize we don't have the answers, but that they're still there to be found, this exact answering of questions. And then on the other side, we can begin to have this embracing of mystery, which I think is a lot of what Jesus is offering here. Um, sometimes this is done in a community. I think that's why a lot of you are here, because this feels like a really safe place to be like, I don't know. You know, the podcasts are going to be like, what'd she do? Uh, I made a weird face podcast listeners. Um, so, right, there's like this safe place where we can ask questions really freely and no one's going to say, oh, you can't be a part of this church because you don't, you know, do a certain thing. Um, but I think the bulk of the work is done alone. Um, there's this old saint named John of the Cross, right? He wrote this book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And I think a lot of time that's seen as this really negative thing, um, and it is. It's stressful, right? It is hard to, to break apart what once felt so solid. Um, but I think when we can see that darkness, we can see that deconstruction or whatever Fowler calls it, um, that you know, new stage of reflectiveness that as that seed in the ground, the baby in the womb, right, 
Jesus in the cave. We can see that as a place um, for new life. So I'm going to read you a couple more quotes before we head into communion. Our patron saint of the sermon, Barbara Brown Taylor, again says this, There's an impenetrability to this darkness that isolates the soul inside. For good or ill, no one can do your work for you while you're in this place. Has your name all over it, and the only way out is through. Darkness is not one thing. It's not, um, it's not a bad place to be. It's not all, all negative at all. Um, there's place to reclaim the holy dark. Morgan Harper Nichols says, there's a reason the sky gets dark at night. We're not meant to see everything all the time. We're meant to rest and trust even in the dark. And so as we enter into communion, this is, I think, the invitation for you. Um, Taylor is a, a theologian. She is an Episcopal priest. She teaches at a lot of colleges. And she offers this that, like, people are always wanting to talk about belief. Uh, what do you believe about hell? What do you believe about the virgin birth? What role does baptism play? How should it be? Um, but she says this, no one asks, on what is your heart set? No one asks, what powers do you most rely on? What is the hope that gives meaning to your life? But these are the questions of faith, not belief. The answers to them are not written down in any book. And they have a way of shifting in the dark. So the invitation today is to shift your view of darkness, um, to see it as a metaphor, but also as a season, right? That, like, God is there. Um, as our scripture said, God dwells in deep darkness, and there are treasures in the dark. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to do communion. Hopefully, it will be up. Um, God, I know... There's so much more about Nicodemus that we can talk about. Um, but I think that this feeling of feeling lost is so common. There's so much information right now, like at us all the time, that there's like pressure to feel like we have to figure out, you know, parenting and church and our life and like how to, I don't know pack bags before we walk out the door for school in the morning or whatever, right? Like, there's this, like, really stressful thing to figure it all out. Um, but I see that Scripture offers a different way um, and that there is, there is space to be um, in the darkness with you, God. Amen.